Well, over, over time, different themes, ideas, emphases, values, opinions, they, they come and go. Many people carry the assumption that things, of course, are, are better now, that we have become more learned, more able, and that we're always improving. Others see the past as the good old days. Mostly what we do see is a limited perspective about what goes on in our part of the world, and a limited perspective in terms of the information we have and, uh, and so on. A limited awareness even of what has influenced us and helped us make up our minds. For years, um, statues have stood in Bristol, Glasgow, Edinburgh, and other places, and nobody thought much about it at all. For years, it was commonplace to tell jokes about the Irish being thick, about the Jews being mean, and about the football team called Partick Thistle Nil. But even as some try to repent of the past, even while some maybe want to airbrush the past out, we cannot do it, ever do that, any of that with the certainty that we, we see the whole picture. Doesn't mean we shouldn't try, we certainly should. And for example, women being able to vote, having access to many jobs, access to tertiary education, having better pay and so on, all of that much better than it was the case at the beginning of the 20th century. But then someone points out that the family unit has become more fragile and so on, and so other knock-on effects. And we see that there's drawbacks even when progress is welcome. It's a very painful lesson being worked out just now in distressing ways in South Africa. The dismantling of apartheid was the removal of a great evil. How we celebrated that it happened without a lot of bloodshed. But now flaws are to the fore and there's plenty of bloodshed at the moment. So do please pray for South Africa. And then we need to be careful that ideas and themes that we might play down or disparage might have a grain or more than a grain of truth to them. Things that are deemed out of order now might have had some positive aspects that we are missing. And in the mix of trying to work all of that out, Christians have to live in the world. We have to join others in making the kind of decisions and judgments but we are not to do so just with the current mood or latest theory being our final standard, but it's the gospel revealed to us in Scripture that is the final matter, in all, final authority rather, in all matters of faith and conduct. Now, one of the themes of Scripture that some find hard to stomach in this current era is that of judgment. If God is a God of love, surely He forgives. He won't judge, and certainly not in the harsh terms expressed in various bits of the Bible. I won't have time to broaden out that question um, and make some responses to it uh, today, but we'll do so in the discussion this week and taking it further on Tuesday evening. On Tuesday evenings, when from seven o'clock, we've been uh, following up the, the service themes, and um, the link to how you can join um, taking it further is um, at the bottom of the screen here. And one of the points raised last week from Ezekiel chapter 16 
is that God's judgment was not just some angry deity stamping his foot because he hasn't got his way. Rather, it was the expression of, of love rejected, the loving response when something wonderful and precious is made light of. You see, God cares. And he cares about all the world, all of life. Ezekiel is learning that lesson bit by bit. He'd been brought up to be someone who was earmarked to become a priest at the age of 30. He was going to serve in the temple. And the temple was probably the be-all and end-all. And now in an exile in Babylon, he was learning that God is not just concerned about what happens in the Jerusalem temple. God had shown him in a vision that he was with the exiles even in Babylon. He had spoken of restoration for others, for Samaria and Sodom at the end of chapter 16 that we looked at last week. And now in chapters 25 to 32, a kind of discrete section in the book of Ezekiel, um, there's a series of judgments on the surrounding nations. For although much of the Old Testament focuses on Israel, the call to Abraham uh, back in Genesis chapter 12 had a world focus. <clears throat> and the creation and the associated stories too in the first 11 chapters of Genesis have the, the whole world as the background. And Israel's calling time and again was affirmed that they were to be the Lord's witnesses to the nations, the Lord's ambassadors in the world. Not only had Israel failed to do that, but the nations around were part of what caused Israel to fail, and so they bore their guilt too. And so God's judgment was to fall. But again, this judgment was in the context of the wider salvation plans made known to Abraham and reaffirmed in many places in the Old Testament, such as the final verses in Ezekiel 16 that we looked at last week. And it was all spelt out even more clearly when the risen Jesus came to his disciples, Matthew chapter 28, and, and told them that they were to go into all the world. You see, God is sovereign over all the world, beginning then with a word against um, Ammon in, in verses 1 to 7 of chapter 25. Beginning with that, Ezekiel is given words against seven nations— and that's a kind of recognized number, a recognized feature in such messages. Amos, for example, condemns seven nations before turning on Israel. The pre-Israelite nations that were living in Canaan were listed in Deuteronomy chapter 7 as being seven in number. And then finally in Scripture, the book of Revelation, the risen Jesus speaks letters to the churches. It's to the seven churches. Seven is a number associated with fullness and completeness. And so, in having a word for seven of the nations, symbolically, Ezekiel is saying, this is a word for all the world over. This is a, a word for everywhere, because God reigns everywhere. Even those who don't acknowledge God are responsible to Him. All of us have life because of God. It is not that some were created by the Lord, others were created by uh, Vishnu, others were created by Buddha, others were created by Allah, and, and some just evolved from the Big Bang or whatever. No, we all owe our existence to God, and we all live in God's universe, and we're all loved by God, sustained by Him, and have responsibilities to live His way. Now, there are issues about how much some people might know about the Lord and 
Again, we can maybe pick that topic up on, on Tuesday night. But it is not the case that there is some tribal God that we follow and those in other parts of the world, those in other tribes can do their own thing. If the story in Scripture is true, then it is Jesus alone who is God's eternal Son. Jesus alone who is the light of the world, the Lamb of God, the Savior of the world. There is no other story, no other God, no other alternative. Now again, this is something that very much goes against the grain of the times in which we live. Where at least it's claimed, if not lived out, that, well, we all can have an opinion, and what you think is true might be true for you, but not for someone else, and so on. Although how our society... Um, holds to that and also spits out the vitriol that spat out on social media, for example, I don't, I don't know, for we're quick to point the finger and condemn. We can't even live up to that supposed article of faith. But that's, that's basically officially it, that there is no uh, ultimate truth. There's no exclusive truth. But Jesus did make claims that did not leave room for anyone else to be on a par with him. And if the gospel is about the graciousness of God reaching out to us and not about what we do, what we think, what we make ourselves into, then loyalty to any alternative is a rejection of that grace, a rejection of the claim that God has come to us as opposed to what we might like to construct. Now, later in the book, Ezekiel will present the Lord as struggling with a dilemma. On the one hand, the sin of Israel was such that the Lord had to punish, but as he punished, that brought disgrace on his own reputation. The nations around were saying, can't it be much of a God if all that's happening to Israel? Have you seen what Israel are going through? Their God must be a real rotter or must have gone away. And so God knew that was the case, but so beyond his punishing of Israel was a commitment to restore and to gather them from exile. And that would be for the sake of his own reputation amongst the nations. And so we have in, in chapter 36 of Ezekiel at verse 22, Therefore say to the Israelites, this is what the sovereign Lord says, it is not for your sake, people of Israel, that I am going to do these things, but for the sake of my holy name. That's what God said, referring to the restoration. Ezekiel 36, verse 22. It's for the glory of God. It's God so who is sovereign over all the world. But also, as Ezekiel gives us these um, prophecies, uh, chapters 25 and following, he was reminding us that great and mighty world powers would rise and then fall again. The world is not going to be trampled and smashed by brutal, immoral regimes forever. A day will come when God is going to bring an end to the state war machines, the terrorist bombs, the totalitarian oppression, the gas chambers, the death camps, the killing fields, and so on. There will be a judgment. There will be a time of ultimate justice and healing and renewal, ultimately. 
The salvation of God is not simply going to be an improving of things here and there, and making things a bit more bearable, but a final judgment and renewal. So don't put your hopes elsewhere, says the, the gospel writers. Salvation is not found in political movements, in scientific discoveries, and in human philosophies. Important as these things are, and they all have a place. No, the renewal and the restoration of the whole of creation comes through one given to as a Savior from heaven, who is intimately related to humanity when he became one of us in Jesus of Nazareth. And now, more than Ezekiel, we have the benefit of seeing that pro promise lived out in Jesus and the promise reaffirmed of how he will come again and how his God's purposes will ultimately flourish. And that is the backdrop against which nations come and go, empires rise and fall. Now, it's particularly significant for our time, I think, that one of the seven judgments um, is on Tyre, chapter 26. You see, Tyre's power and influence was not built on military might. They didn't have the, the best armies and the, um, the biggest tanks and all that kind of stuff. No, the reason that Tyre was in the ascendancy was because of its strong economic base. In the 20th century, we saw totalitarian regimes come and go. Stalin's Russia, the Third Reich, and so on. But we also saw in that century, and, and moving more and more emphatically into this century, the rise of, of colossal economic forces. Now, partly that was um, to do with the strength of particular nations like the USA and China and so on. But increasingly, economic dominance is moving away from countries and being achieved by companies. Some of them controlled by incredibly wealthy individuals. And well over half of the biggest economies in the world today are not in fact countries, but companies. Companies whose turnover is greater than the, the gross domestic product of many a nation. But again, Ezekiel is saying these, these economic empires, just like the military ones, will not last forever because it is the purposes of God that are to be fulfilled. And it's the purpose of having fellowship with people that God is ultimately doing and building. The promise that held out is not a better society, a more fair or equitable distribution, better health care, and so on but rather is to do with God's original purpose of knowing and being known. No fewer than 15 times in the chapters 25 to 32, no fewer than 15 times in these oracles against the nations does the phrase come, then you, or then they, will know that I am the Lord. Because that's what God's after, that we will know him, know that he's the Lord have fellowship with him, so that the final picture in, in Revelation is, is not um, just of some kind of economic or military conquest, but is of God living face to face with his people among them in fellowship. And it is the awareness of the glory of God being good, being right, being fit for all peoples that feeds Ezekiel's faith as he declares God's words 
even when these words are the unpopular messages of judgment. Whatever takes place on the international arena can only do so under the sovereign will of God. But it will also serve ultimately His purposes to extend the knowledge of the Lord as God. The goal of all God's action. And so the central passion of His prophet's life and witness is for God to be known and acknowledged, for the Lord to be adored for who He truly is. And that surely is the very same mission and purpose for all of God's people. And that has always been the case. Much earlier on in Israel's history, the prophet Elijah prayed for Israel as he was confronting the false god of Baal. And at the time of the sacrifice, 1 Kings 18, at the time of the sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel. That's what he's wanting it to be known. He's not wanting people to say what a great guy he is. He's wanting God to be adored and known as God. And so through into the New Testament and, and Jesus himself, and as he prayed on the eve of his arrest and, and crucifixion, his prayer was not just for the disciples, verse 20 of John 17, but he prays for all of his people, that you, that you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in, us, be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. That's what Jesus is after. I have given them glory that you gave me, that they may become one as we are one, I and them and you and me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you have sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. How's the world going to know that Jesus is Lord? By the unity of his people, by the concern for the glory of God. So Elijah's prayer that Israel must know, Jesus' prayer was that the world must know about the glory of the living God. What mattered to Ezekiel was that both in Israel and in the world of the nations around, the glory of God would be revealed. The honor of God's name would be restored and the truth of God's identity would be known. It is a right and a proper challenge to ask ourselves if our motivation is as God-centered as that. Let us pray. In all kinds of ways, some of which we notice, some of which we don't notice, we put ourselves right at the center. We make ourselves out to be the ones around whom the world revolves. Trouble is everyone else has got the same idea. And Lord, it's a recipe for impoverishment of life, not enrichment of life.
So help us to hear again Jesus' words about it being better to give than to receive, about the last being first, about serving. And might there be in our ways, Lord, that concern to see you get all the glory, you to get the praise. Keep us from doing mission to make ourselves feel better, from doing mission to build up the membership of a, a club called church. Rather, give us this deep longing for the glory of God to be important, to really matter. In Jesus' name, amen.